Hello and welcome to Two Peds in a Pod, the medical education podcast from the Children's Emergency Department in Derby. Uh, I'm Ian Lewins, your host today, and I'm joined once again by, by my good friend and colleague, Dr Nigel Ruggins. Good afternoon, Nigel. Hello, Ian. Um, so as long as I've known you, we're going to talk about something today which has always seemed to be a passion of yours, yep. which is the care of children with cystic fibrosis. Absolutely. Um, so taking it right down to basics, what do you mean? What is cystic fibrosis? What do we mean by that? Well, first of all, it's a genetic disorder, so it's the commonest autosomal uh, recessive in, um, uh, condition in our Caucasian population. But effectively, uh, it's a, a gene mutation problem uh, that causes uh, an abnormal protein that produces very thick and viscid secretions. And this can be anywhere in the body, from the lungs to the gut. Um, and it's been associated with uh, significant mortality and significant morbidity. And this is, when we're sort of thinking about how, how this comes to light, this is something that we screen for on the, the, the heel prick test, isn't it? It is. So it's screened for on the newborn screening test. It's a two-stage process. They initially look for um, something called immune reactive trypsin, and if that is found to be elevated, they will do a second stage where they look for the commonest mutations associated with cystic fibrosis. And does that heel prick test pick up all children with CF or is it some children with CF? It it picks up the majority, so probably over 90%. um, Some will present in other ways. We have some within our local clinic that have um, either been diagnosed clinically or not been picked up by the screening. Okay, so pretty pretty good actually. Pretty good, pretty good. Okay, so what then happens if, if the, sort of the lab picks up this as a positive thing? Do, what happen, Do you get a phone call to say this child's yep. positive? So I get a phone call. Um, uh, in the past, it used to be directly to the GP initially, but that mm. just seemed to um, include a few steps that weren't probably necessary. Um, and then I would arrange to uh, meet the baby and the family. And of course, that initial meeting is quite difficult because Mm. uh, parents often have got no idea that anything is wrong with their baby at all. And then to tell them that they've got a potentially uh, life-threatening, life-limiting disease is quite a difficult conversation to have in that first appointment. And I don't know if you know, what what do the parents actually get told prior to them coming? Is it something's been picked up? Do they get a letter from the screening centre? Or? No, they leave it to us to contact oh, the right. parents, which is quite difficult. Um, sometimes when you, uh, if, uh, sometimes I'll give them a ring initially and um, ask them if they've got any worries about the baby. And then I would say that they have got uh, something that's been picked up on the screening that we need to um, have a chat with them about and to look at the baby. So I try not to be uh, specific because the last thing you want them to do is to rush on on Google yeah, and, yeah. And, and try and find things out themselves. I've even had some uh, uh, one couple that were told that they had a raised IRT and they came to me because they thought that meant that there was something wrong with the thyroid. Wow. Um, so I had a lot of unpicking to do then. So if they ask you directly, then it's difficult not to give them some information. But um, I try and do it at that first face-to-face. Because I guess most people sort of consent to that screening, either A, without really fully knowing what they're consenting to, 
but I think most people consent in the presumption that it'll be normal. Absolutely. And of course, that's that is true for most of the people. Um, and um, we all the, the, the information is there about there's there's fantastic publications about the, the conditions that we screen for and why we do it, but you know in, for every individual pregnancy, do we really go through all that? Mm. We just think that it's right to do these things because you know we want to uh, the best outcome for our babies, but we don't go in there thinking oh I can't wait to know what the result of my yeah. CF screening is. No. Yeah. So. They come along to the clinic with sort of a bit of pre-warning. Yeah. What sort of things do you do in clinic in terms of sort of history and examination and those sorts of things? So uh, the first thing, important thing is that I, I'm, I'm there and I'm prepared with information to back up um, uh, any discussions that we have. I'm also there with one of our specialist nurses because I think they often need that bit of extra support once they go home. Um, and initially you are doing an assessment as to whether the baby's thriving, does it look like it's pancreatic sufficient, is it uh, 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 overfeeding, is it having lots of pale um, stools, mm. offensive stools. Um, and of course at that time, at a few weeks of age, which is what we're talking about, they won't tend to have any respiratory problems. Mm. So the child's, say the child's thriving nicely, putting on weight, no clinical concerns at all, and you examine them and they examine normally, what would you do next? So we would we would try and organise a sweat test on that first appointment. Okay. Um, the problem with that is that sometimes you won't always get enough sweat. Mm. Um, we would get a stool sample off and we would do a faecal elastase because that's the best measure of pancreatic function. So that would be abnormal in a baby with CF. But again, you can't just exclude CF on that because we do have a number of patients who have cystic fibrosis, proven, but are pancreatic sufficient. But it is that um, pancreatic sufficiency that's the most important thing to manage when they're first diagnosed. Okay, so it's, it's sort of the, the, the gut side of things, the thriving side of things, actually chesty-wise, they're unlikely to run into problems this early. That early, yeah. And at, at what stage in that sort of consultation and those investigations do you sit down and go yes your child definitely has cystic fibrosis what are the things you need to sort of tick off if you like well sometimes you will have the um, screening result and it will tell you that they've got the commonest combination and their delta f508 yeah. homozygote and then really you're home and dry yeah. it's where they've got some of the rarer mutations where the outcomes are not necessarily as well defined um, and officially uh, we would want at least one positive sweat test to right. tell them they've definitely got cystic fibrosis. Okay. Um, but as we learn more about the genetics of this condition, we are starting to unravel um, certain problematical areas. So we have a class of patients now that we call CF SPIDs, right. <laughs> which sounds a bit weird, um, but it's uh, cystic fibrosis screen positive indeterminate diagnosis. Right, okay. So these are patients that have been picked up on the screening program, so they may have had a, a, an abnormal IRT and they've identified CF mutations, but the nature of those mutations, the clinical outcome, is not well defined. So they tend to have a much milder disease mm. generally, or they may have been ones that wouldn't present until perhaps in adulthood or later life. Right, so really slightly trickier. Slightly to, to, trickier situation yeah. to manage, yeah. 
Okay, so sweat tests, that's something that you sort of do as a day case thing. What, yep. what does that involve? So that really involves just, as it says really, on the tin, it's collecting uh, an amount of sweat that you can analyse for um, the level of chloride and sodium in the sweat. It's a non-painful procedure. Um, you need some form of actually collecting the sweat. Um, we used to use a, a, a pre-weighed filter paper and pass a small potential difference across mm. it and collect the sweat that way. These days we've got a much better um, uh, system uh, where the sweat's collected into a very small um, coil and uh, there's a coloured dye in it so you can see when you've got enough. Okay, um, that sounds so better than what I used to it do. It is much better, <laughs> it's much better. Okay, um, and as you say, in those where we're not quite sure, the positive sweat test is, is you know, that's your, your diagnostic. It's yes. still the diagnostic because we can't completely rely on the genetics. Okay, so that's the very young ones, that's our 90% of the, the, on the screening test. You must, of course, get referrals from GPs saying, look, I've seen this child, he's three or four or five, he's always been a bit short, he seems to get lots of coughs and colds, and I'm just wondering, could this child have cystic fibrosis? What would you do in clinic? What sort of things would you be asking in clinic? So it, it's about their um, their chest infections, whether they're thriving, when they whether they've got any bowel symptoms associated with uh, possible malabsorption. Um, looking at their growth, are they mm. underweight for height? Have they got clubbing when you examine them? Because we have had a couple of patients locally who have been diagnosed because they've got clubbing um, and at a, at a later mm. age uh, without the diagnosis having been uh, thought of before. Um, so it's those sort of things. And we shouldn't be scared of doing a sweat test. Um, I think um, we tend to think, well, these children have been um, screened for mm. at birth these days, uh, but we mustn't be over-reliant on screening. As I've already pointed out, it's not 100%. Yeah. And if the parents have got true concerns and it's been raised with them, sometimes you do a sweat test just to say, look, I don't think it's cystic fibrosis, but we need to be uh, sure because it will affect how we, uh, how we manage the patient. And I think when you look at the, uh, the current data in our CF patients, um, obviously in the older ones, um, nearly 70% of those will have had diagnosis um, out of the newborn screening right. um, period. But of course the screening programme has changed, it is much more sophisticated now. Um, and again, you're sort of thinking sweat tests for these kids. Yeah. I mean, do you ever get kids that walk in and you go, oh, you've got CF? Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. unfortunately. And then uh, you get that occasional patient, we've had a patient recently that um, had been investigated elsewhere and came into our um, emergency department with a um, chest infection and really chronic changes on chest x-ray. Mm. And um, he had uh, clubbing and you thought, you've got to have CF. But actually his sweat test came back normal. And um, uh, his faecal elastase was normal, so he was pancreatic sufficient. But we decided as we were doing our blood test that we would look to see if there are any other CF mutations there. And in fact, um, he had a rarer CF um, mutation profile, which actually made him pancreatic sufficient and gave him a normal sweat test. Right. But by diagnosis, he still had cystic fibrosis. Right. And he has got significant bronchiectasis and lung disease. Right. Okay. So if we sort of split it into the how we manage these kids in mm. terms of the chest side of things and the, the, the sort of the pancreatic side of things, I think people are fairly, you know, when they think of cystic fibrosis, they think of chest, they think of physiotherapy. Yeah. 
what sort of treatments uh, what sort of treatments do you start and when do you make that decision to start from a respiratory perspective so um in the past and traditionally we've as soon as a child or a baby has been diagnosed we put them on flucloxacillin prophylaxis and this is because the early infections in cystic fibrosis are often associated with staph aureus yeah. um, it's a very uh, nasty destructive bug and um, uh, flucloxacillin is a good narrow um, uh, spectrum antibiotic against staphylococcus. And so that has been the traditional uh, way of managing it. There is currently actually a national trial going on to randomise patients to having fluclox prophylaxis from diagnosis to not. Um, there's been a concern perhaps that um, earlier acquisition of pseudomonas and other infections mm. may happen if they've had uh, flucloxacillin prophylaxis. So that's the that's a, a, a national trial that's going on at the moment. Um, there's not much physiotherapy that we do with um, babies. We just show uh, parents how to uh, position them and to help um, manage their secretions. Um, but as they get older, uh, they showed further techniques, and then we start introducing. Um, bits of kits that can help them um, expectorate and get rid of their uh, sputum, their sticky sputum. Um, and there's a whole uh, gambit of things and techniques that our physiotherapists use to help them do that. And that's all sort of age appropriate and also giving them a chance to uh, do the treatments themselves. Okay. So and is, I guess it's very much, you know, you've got prophylaxis and then you treat, you know, each acute... Absolutely. ...based on, hopefully, some sputum cultures. Yeah. So obviously they don't produce sputum right, right from the word no. go. And uh, we do try and get um, direction from uh, taking cough swabs. We all know that cough swabs are fairly limited, but mm. they, they are quite good in terms of correlation with uh, um, infection in the lower respiratory tract. But if you're treating blindly, then we would tend to use antibiotics that cover the sort of organisms that are common mm. in that particular age group or uh, from that particular individual's history. Mm. And thinking about infections and thinking about bugs, what is it about Pseudomonas that's a particular worry in these children? Well, yeah, Pseudomonas, the acquisition of Pseudomonas, once you become colonised with it, um, it is associated with deterioration in lung function, uh, deterioration in um, uh, nutritional status. Um, but one of the things that has happened since I've uh, been looking after CF is that we've recognised that early um, Pseudomonas infections uh, are actually um, uh, different to those that when you become chronically established and if you aggressively treat those early Pseudomonas infections with um, nebulised antibiotics and uh, um, oral uh, ciprofloxacin we know that you can delay the appearance of Pseudomonas um, in terms of chronic uh, carriage for a number of years. So um, that's been a, a big change. And okay. the longer we can delay uh, patients chronically um, carrying pseudomonas, uh, the better the outcome in terms of their um, overall uh, uh, morbidity and mortality. Okay. And then just leading on from the nebulised therapy, the, the, you used other nebulised medicines sort of acutely, don't you, for yes. some of these children? Yeah. So things that um, help break down the sputum and make it much easier to cough up. So there's a, a medication called uh, Palmazyme or DNAs. 
um, which is a nebulized once a day. It's a mucolytic agent, and um, uh, studies showed that it, it, it improved their lung function by 10 to 15 percent. It reduced infective exacerbations, um, and uh, you know that it reduced the need for admissions and IV antibiotics. Uh, we also use hypertonic saline, mm. uh, which is, uh, um, again, it induces the patient to cough and helps them expectorate. So combining this with good physiotherapy um, is a good way of managing their lung problems. And do you get sort of very variable, so, you know, no, no two children with cystic fibrosis, like, do you get very variable? Some children go months and months and years and years without picking up infections, and others just seem to get infection after infection after infection. Absolutely, and, and that variability has been subject to a lot of um, discussion. You know, are there uh, genetic modulators to, so we know that a patient's Delta F508, but why do some uh, end up on the transplant list at uh, 11, 12 years of age, and why do some go on to adult surgery? services with 90% lung function. Um, so the differences between those patients, sometimes there are you know, clear differences in terms of their ability to do their treatments and the support they get, but other times there doesn't appear to be a great deal of logic to okay. it. Okay, just unlucky. Unlucky, okay. yeah. So moving on then to the gut side of things mm. and the pancreatic insufficiency, if I can say it. Yep. What are the, what are the things that you, you do for that? How do you help with, the, with that side of things? Well, the simple answer is that they're lacking in enzymes, particularly lipase, that helps them absorb the fat and getting the calories from their, um, uh, from their nutrition. And therefore, you just have to replace that. But that is really over simple um, because uh, clearly it's quite a, uh, a, your diet is varied. Um, we want them to have a high calorie diet with lots of fat so all the sort of things that we would like to eat like bacon sandwiches um, you know McDonald's milkshakes all those sort of things we encourage our cystics to eat as long as they take um, enough enzymes uh, to absorb all the uh, calories and the, uh, the fats with it so the dietetic input is mm. really important and uh, we have to teach them uh, a little bit like you do in diabetes to try and match what you're eating and the fat content with the amount of uh, enzyme that you have to take. But you do have to take enzymes with everything that you're eating mm. uh, that contains those things. Otherwise, you'll get symptoms of diarrhea and tummy ache. And one of the things that our um, cystics tend to be adherent to is taking their creon because right. if they don't, they get nasty they symptoms know. and they know. Yeah. Right. So they might miss the odd prophylactic dose of antibiotics, Absolutely. but they don't miss the creon. Okay. Absolutely. Generally. 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 Yeah. Okay. Um, you, you mentioned you touched on sort of transplantation and those sorts of things. Mm. Do, is that something that is common or uncommon or... <sighs> So do, that, do you have to meet a, you obviously have to meet a certain criteria. You have criteria. to meet a certain criteria and as, as with transplantation of any organ, uh, there's a lack of, uh, of donors. Yeah. Um, I can say that the, all our data is collected annually on a national CF register and the register for 2017 has just been published, all the data, and there were 50 odd transplants performed uh, throughout the country. Um, and uh, they will be generally in people who are thought to have less than a year's expectation uh, for survival. Um, we have had two uh, children in our clinic that have uh, gone on and had lung transplants and now uh, are in the adult clinic. Okay. So uh, generally their FEV1 has to be less than 30%. They're often oxygen dependent, at least at night. And then they have a lot of other associated CF-related problems. And of course, I guess the great dilemma with this is you've got to be so 
bad. But you've then got to wait. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I'm sure there, there are children who've, who've died waiting on the transplant. Absolutely. So uh, I've said we've had two successful. We've had three that have died um, on the list. We've also had one that was assessed for transplant but not felt to be suitable because there are certain other criteria. So there are certain infections that these patients might have that are not suitable, do very badly after transplantation um, because of uh, immunosuppression that they have mm. to have for that. And it is, I mean, is transplantation curative? No. <laughs> so um, if we take the example of uh, one of my patients who had a uh, transplant at the age of uh, 15, um, she, before she had her transplant, she was in oxygen at night. She was having three monthly uh, courses of IV antibiotics. Um, she had CF-related diabetes, so she mm. was on insulin. She'd had a number of uh, spinal fractures because of osteoporosis associated with her insulin. So um, after a lung transplant, which was successful, and she's now something like six years post-transplant, she has got 70-80% uh, lung function. Uh, she's um, not had IV antibiotics for years, um, but she has still got uh, an insulin requirement because of her CF-related diabetes. Mm. She's still got uh, problems with her bones because of osteoporosis. So it, you can't underestimate the change that it can make in terms of their lung function, but it, of course it isn't uh, a cure for the, um, the multi-system um, disease itself. Mm. Okay. Um, and th sort of thinking about older kids, how, how long do you hang on to your cystic fibrosis patients? Because we, we talk a lot about transitioning to adult services. Are there adult respiratory physicians who just do cystic fibrosis? Yeah, there are now. Oh, right. okay. There are now. So um, just to give you an idea of how things have changed, so when I started looking after cystic fibrosis patients as a, a registrar in Nottingham uh, with the consultant there, there were no adult patients at all. So anybody that went to 16, 17, she still looked after and they didn't get further than that. Mm. So now there are well-established CF adult clinics. And in fact, you know, for the last few years, they, in, on the National Registry, there are more adults uh, with cystic fibrosis than there are children. So mm -hmm. over 60% of the CF population in the UK are over 16. Right. So we start talking about transition around 13, 14 years of age. Um, and it is very uh, important thing in CF because we do know that around that sort of time, that teenage time, is associated with a significant uh, challenge to uh, their health, both in mm. terms of compliance and also something around the disease. It just seems to be a, a difficult time for them, um, particularly in girls. So there's a big differential now in terms of survival in boys compared to girls. So boys actually do a bit better than the girls and that's a, a, a consistent thing that we've seen in the national data. Um, we're not quite sure what the influences are of it but uh, that's definitely a true thing. So that transition period um, is really really important mm. to manage well and it's not a sudden thing it has to happen over a gradual period of time. Yeah. And of course it's not just the child that you're looking after that's that you're looking after a family and it, yeah do, do you do you refer them to genetics or do you do some of the counseling yourself so they, they're referred to genetics right from whether well, the, the parents are the yeah, yeah they're, they're introduced to genetics right at the word go um, some of them don't want to take it up at that stage okay. um, and then we start talking to our younger um, adult patients about the implications for their future in terms of 
you know, passing the genes on, what sort of things can be done. And some of them at that stage will want to um, talk with the geneticists. Uh, some of them won't feel, you know, ready to well, do that. Um, obviously, there are the issues of um, impending pregnancies in uh, teenage girls and also our boys, and we have to um, address those concerns as well and manage those things. Okay. And I guess just sort of coming finally, the, despite despite all the many advances, this is still a life-limiting condition? It is a life-limiting condition, although, again, on the national survey, the mean predicted survival uh, is now 47 years. Okay. So that's a, 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 you know, a massive change. That's a huge change. Actually, that is a huge it? change. And I think the, the future is even brighter. So the newer treatments actually looking at... So there was people were very excited about the possibility of gene therapy. Um, unfortunately, although theoretically that mm. looked like it was going to be fantastic, um, it perhaps hasn't produced the dividends. But actually, the new treatments that modulate the way that the CFTR protein works are looking incredibly promising. Okay. Final question then, which is a bit of a personal question. Yeah. Since I've known you, you've always seemed to really enjoy looking after children with cystic fibrosis and their mm -hmm. families. Why is that? I think <laughs> it's difficult to know, but it is one of those challenging conditions. It's a multidisciplinary um, and multi-system condition um, that you actually get to know these families um, incredibly mm. well, sometimes a little bit too well. And it's about working with colleagues that are motivated to do the same thing. And that, uh, that team working um, is really important and a, and a really uh, great atmosphere to be working in. And I suppose the other thing is that the changes that I've seen in the outcome of this disease from when I started looking after children as a registrar, senior registrar to now is actually um, unrecognisable. It has made a massive difference. Right, lovely. And I think anybody listening will pick up that enthusiasm and passion that you have. Nigel, thank you so much for talking to us That's today. It's a pleasure. Thank Cheers. you.